and that the world sees it and they look at this and they don't understand how can you love each other so completely and so fully? How, how can you do that? That's what's supposed to come out of us and the only way we can do that, of course, is through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the last text that we looked at, John fought to show his readers the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is who he claimed he was, but now he moves on to this different idea of the assurance that we can have. One commentator wrote this about this next section. He says this, no, the word no, occurs seven times in the following verses, indicating John's focus on the assurance and even certainty of Christian faith and salvation. And so as we finish this section, this section is literally meant for us to read and be encouraged to know with certainty that we will be with God in eternity one day if we submit our hearts and our lives to Jesus Christ. There is no greater promise, and John wants them to know this, and I'll explain why that's so crucial in a few minutes here. But let's read these verses together, starting in verse 13. John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now we're going to deal with a couple of things in there uh, in just a few minutes here. A couple of things that you probably, as you were reading along or listening along, that you kind of had some questions about. One of these is going to be about this idea about asking in God's will and, and what that looks like. And the other one is going to be this idea of what are sins that lead to death and what are sins that don't lead to death and, and how are we supposed to pray for these things. And, and so we'll clarify that. But I just want to spend just a couple of minutes on this first verse here. It's very straightforward. It's very plain, but it has some very serious implications to us. He, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Very clearly, John writes this and he's saying, I'm writing this to you who believe, to you who know Jesus. He's not talking to the cessationists at this point. He's not talking to those who don't know or confess Jesus. He's talking directly to the church. I'm writing these things to you that you would know that you have eternal life. John wants them to know, and not, not just intellectually, but to experience the reality that we have eternal life because we believe in Jesus. And the more I was kind of thinking about this verse and, and just meditating on it, 
the more I realize how important that truth is for us in today's church as well. We, we may not have a group of people that call themselves the cessationists or that, or that people later would call it, but we have people that are trying desperately in this world right now to redefine Christianity, to redefine Scripture, and to twist what God has said and make it say something that it doesn't say or taking what it clearly does say and eliminating it. I talk about this often, and I'm going to talk about this specifically next week as we enter into these, these seven core issues of theology. But we believe that the Word of God, that the Bible that you hold in your hands, that it is from God, that in its original language it is perfect, and it is His words written to us that we would know the truth. That defines how we understand everything. That the Word of God is how we find conclusion to any of our theological uh, understandings. But in today's world, uh, so many people are fighting and saying, well, that's not what this says, and they try to twist it, uh, make it say things in which it doesn't say, or like I previously said, or they just stroke chunks of it out. They say, well, that isn't relevant for today. But we believe that any conclusion that we're going to make about God better come from what God has already spoken to us because we know this to be true. Many people, and I've again said this lots of times, but many people have come up to me and said, well, God told me this, and then they give me a specific thing. And most always, the vast majority of the time, it is used to justify a behavior or a decision that goes against what Scripture says. They're just trying to make themselves feel better and say, well, no, it's okay. God said I can do this because. But it goes against what the rest of Scripture teaches. And that can be so, so dangerous. But that's what we're finding in today's world because it can sound really logical, can sound really good. And the easiest thing to say is, oh, well, that was to a different culture at a different time, so it doesn't apply to us. However, just because something was said to specific people at a specific time, that doesn't mean that it becomes irrelevant to us. The problem is that that means we have homework to do and we actually have to study and we have to figure out what does this mean and we have to learn how to interpret Scripture correctly in a proper hermeneutic that's consistent from the beginning to the end. We can't decide that we're going to interpret the Old Testament one way and the New Testament a different way. We have to be consistent with all of these things. John is telling his readers throughout this whole book, and I, I'm telling you this too, is don't be persuaded by those who say, God told me. Can God speak to someone directly? Certainly God is capable of that. But would God speak to someone anything that goes against what his revealed word teaches us? Absolutely not. But the very heart of this letter is that we cannot deviate from what we know to be true, the revealed truth about Jesus Christ in the scriptures. That is central. And that is how we know that we have eternal life because Jesus is who he claimed he was. So let's deal with these two uh, issues really quickly as we move forward. So verses 14 and 15 talk about this idea of, of asking according to God's will. It says that if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. So let me just really quickly clarify a couple of things here. Um, sometimes we make a statement and then we 
take the opposite of that statement and we say, if this is true, then that means that this is true. And that's not necessarily the case. So what this is not saying is that if, excuse me, that if you ask God something that's not in accordance with his will, that he doesn't listen or he doesn't hear. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that God only listens to you and only will have intimate relationship with you when you ask according to his will. That's not the point here. In verse 15, what's important to understand is the reason why we pray. The issue is not about uh, asking so that we can get. Sometimes we view prayer that way. God, I need, so give me. God, this would be good, so please grant me. And that is part of prayer. And I think sometimes we get on either side of that extreme where we say, well, we shouldn't ask, but Jesus himself teaches that we should. But we also shouldn't look at it from the context that prayer is primarily about asking and receiving. The, the, the goal of prayer is communion with God. As we pray, we want to know God's heart more and more. And as we enter into a deepening relationship with God, we start to understand his heart more. And I'm convinced we start to ask more according to his will because we start to know who he is more. So what does it mean to ask according to God's will? Here's a very helpful statement by Yarbrough. He writes it this way. To ask God according to his will does not mean that before Christians can pray effectively, they need somehow to discover God's secret plans for the future. Rather, it means that they should ask according to what the Bible teaches about God's will for his people. If Christians are praying in accordance with what pleases God as found in the teaching of Scripture, then they are praying according to his will. What a helpful statement that is. We talked about this uh, on Thursday, I think, our men's group. I should know what day it is, but I think it was Thursday. Uh, we were talking about this. We want to know what God's will is for our lives. We all want to know that. God, what's your will for my life? What would you have me do? But I think sometimes we look so specifically, we narrow down to one such a fine, small point that we miss everything else that is around it. The issue is not really what job should I have or what career path should I set towards or, or what town or community should I, should I live in. Rather, the issue is our own hearts. God's will is that we would love him with our whole heart, that we would choose to serve him and conduct ourselves in a way that at work and at home and with our family and with our friends, all of those things that they point to God and how we choose to live. Simply put is we want to mature in our Christian walk. That is God's will for you. God has given each one of us unique abilities, unique talents, unique characteristics. But I'm convinced as I read scripture that there is not just one little perfect path that we have to follow, but rather it's about an attitude of saying to God, I want to use what you have gifted me with for your glory, for your good, for your honor. Would you direct me? And then we just allow God to lead us in that. Doesn't always just end at exactly this one spot where we go, well, I'm in the right job at the right time, with the right place, with the right friends, with the right spouse. With boom, I, I think that's missing the point. I think rather is us asking God, how can I honor you right now? 
with the career that I've chosen, or, or maybe that you would direct me to something different, if that would be the case, is holding everything we have with open hands, saying, God, what would you have me do in this moment with the people that I interact with right now? That is God's will for us. Unfortunately, I think our culture has snuck into our thinking too much and our cultural norms start to define our identity more than our faith in Jesus does. So let me just say it very simply. As you, if you are a Christian, as you are a child of the King, you have been created by the creator of the universe who loves you desperately and your identity is found in that, not in what you do. Not in your job. Not where you live not the people that you surround yourself with. You, your identity is found in Christ. And as we understand that, that becomes the predominant thing that leads us everywhere else in life. Is I'm so happy that not every single person who is a Christian wants to enter into full-time ministry because if that was the case, it would be very ineffective. We need people of all occupations, of all walks of life doing ministry and and. and working together as a church family to accomplish what God has called for us to do together. And some of you have way uh, different skills and abilities and are going to impact and minister to people that I am never going to be able to. Praise the Lord for that. We need God to do that in each one of us in unique and different ways. When we think about this idea of what is God's will for my life, we need to back up from those specific things. And as we read in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I'm going to read it again. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God Sorry, what is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? As we submit to Christ and to the power of the Holy Spirit and, and not to the world, it'll become more and more abundantly clear and evident what God's will is in our lives. Because we're listening to the right person, the right place, the right authority. The next issue that we kind of see is, is in verses 16 and 17 here. And, and the way this is worded is, is a challenge and, and maybe brings a lot of questions. So I want to read these two verses again and then do my best to explain them clearly and without, uh, without spending too long here. So he says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So before we get into the kind of confusing part of that, let's, let's look at this from a face value and recognize uh, what's clear in there. Is What John is saying is that we are to pray for our Christian brothers and sisters. When we see a brother or sister who is being tempted or who is giving into temptation, we are called to support them in prayer and hold them up. That's, that's the simple part. That's the clear, that's the obvious part. But then we kind of deal with this idea of what leads to death and, and what doesn't lead to death. And so again, I'm, I'm going to try and be as clear as I can here, but this can be a very, very big conversation. So if you want to 
Uh, if you're not satisfied or if you want to have this discussion further, by all means, just let me know. Uh, we can go out for coffee. And again, you know I say that, uh, what's the word, tongue-in-cheek, because I'm never going to drink coffee in my whole life. But, you know, that's not the point. We can sit down and we can have a chat about these things. I'd love uh, to continue this. But Lori read for us a verse, and we all read it along with her. First John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that's in this book. It's in this letter that we find. And in that place, we don't find this, like, qualification where it's like, here's the sins that God can forgive and will forgive, and here's the ones that he can't and won't. But it kind of sounds like in, in our verse here in 16, right, there's, there's sin that, that doesn't lead to death, and that there is sin that does lead to death, and he clarifies, right, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death, and there is sin that does lead to death. So how do we interpret that? Again, this is why I spent so much time dealing with the context of the book. Is John's dealing with, predominantly dealing with the church, with his brothers and sisters, with those who love Jesus, but he's constantly contrasting with those who are outside, who have denied Christ as Savior. And that's what's taking place here. So he says, if you see a brother, a brother or a sister in the church that is, that is giving in to temptation, uphold them in prayer that God would bring them life easiest way I can explain that to you is that we would understand that when we sin, that we hurt the heart of God and our relationship with God suffers. And so we need to walk in, first we need to repent of those things, turn our eyes and our focus back towards God and, and live for Him. And when we are living, uh, when we're abiding in Him and when we're living the way that He has created us to live, that intimacy is, is just so much more. And that's how we want to live. And we know that if you've, if you've had those moments, like maybe you've been on a missions trip before where you've, been, uh, where you've seen God work in, in just such an obvious, clear way and your focus is solely there and, and, and you can just feel the presence of God and then other times you're like, well, why can't I feel the presence of God here? Usually in my own life, it's because my focus is on way more than just God. And that's always the challenge. We always say when we come home from, from missions trips or, or things like that is we come home and the world is still waiting for us to try and discourage us and bring us down, to cause us stresses and anxieties to, so our eyes get taken off of Jesus and back onto the world. And it takes so much intentionality every single day to pray and ask that God would show us what's important, what's true and what's real and what's right, and that all those other things would become less in our minds. But they, they're always there, and we always fight that. So what is a sin that leads to death? Now again, what I'm saying is there is no such thing as a sin that Jesus' blood is insufficient to forgive. Rather, Krauss writes it this way. He says this. They are people, this is the second group of people, they are people who deny that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. They also deny the significance of his atoning death. This would mean that they place themselves outside of the sphere of forgiveness and their sins become sins unto death. If, if we 
reject the only thing that can save us, if we deny Jesus as the atoning work of salvation, if we say, no, it's not through that, like the cessationists did, and said, it's through some other means that we'll find salvation, well, then we have given into a sin that leads to death because it cannot lead to life. Because we've denied the very thing that leads us to life. And that's Jesus. And so you have this contrast that exists there. But then this question popped into my brain. is So why does John say not to pray for that sin? Why, why does he say that? And I struggled with that for a long time. And so I studied this and kept trying to look for it. And then I realized I was asking the wrong question because I made the text say something it never says. Number one thing you always got to do when you study scripture is not read someone else's opinion first, but read the scripture over and over and over and over again until we see what it says. What does John say? There is sin that, le- there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. He's not condemning or saying don't pray for those people. He's quantifying these two areas differently. Yarborough again writes it this way, John leaves open whether to pray for that situation if it arises, but it would be better in such cases to pray for repentance. The issue here to me seems that when John's talking about praying for his brothers and sisters, he's praying for that relationship to be restored. When you see your brother and sister giving into temptation, pray for them that they would come back to Christ, that they would recognize that temptation does not lead anywhere good. And that they would just turn from that and go back to Christ so that that relationship can be restored the way it's meant to be. But rather for those who have already denied that Jesus is the Christ, the issue is not uh, a restored relationship in that context. The issue is repentance. The issue is I need to submit that Jesus is the Christ. When we see our non-Christian friends that should be the number one prayer that we have above everything else, is that they would see their need for Christ, that they would humble themselves and that they would repent of their sin and that they would turn towards Jesus. That's the way in which we should pray for them first and foremost. Then the last few verses here, and again, if, if, I have not covered that sufficiently. By all means, let me know, and we can have that conversation further. But he says this now in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now, again, we've talked about this earlier in the letter, right? The issue, again, is not uh, that we just suddenly no longer sin when we come to Christ. We all know that that's not true. We all struggle with sin from this day until the day that we die. The issue is a pattern, a lifestyle of saying, I want to choose to follow God. And yes, I give in to my sinful nature sometimes, but the goal is that I would listen to the Spirit, that I would submit to His leading in my life. And so my identity is now placed not in my sinful nature, but in Christ. And so when I give in to sin, that's not the pattern of my life anymore. The pattern of my life is is a desire to please God. Then there's this promise. He who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. There's an old hymn that says we are safe and secure in the arms of Jesus. What a wonderful promise that is. 
is yes, we can be oppressed. Yes, we can be discouraged. Yes, we can be tempted. But we know that Christ holds us. That we are safe in his arms. What a promise there. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Again, this is why we're so big on the word of God. This is why this is central, because the only way in which we can know God is by reading what he has said for us about who he is. As we read scripture, we become more aware and we're taught more. Here's what Jesus said. Here's what God said. Here's what his prophets have said to us and show us who he is. That's how we know God. That's how we can mature. That's how we can find understanding is through him. He is the true God and eternal life. And then he ends with this, what can seem like maybe a strange verse. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And as I was kind of considering that, is, is it all goes back, right, to Genesis 1. It all goes back to this idea of idolatry in our hearts. We will serve something. The question is, what are we going to serve? John's saying, don't, don't depart from Jesus because that is, he is the only thing worth serving. Everything else, every other idol is an idol of the heart that does not satisfy, that does not lead to life, but in fact leads to death. And so the people that have left the church here, they're claiming that they are going to be the ones that are in heaven and the church isn't because God's given us this divine revelation of something, but they're denying the very central aspect of the gospel. And John's saying that is idolatry because it's taken the focus off of Jesus and puts the focus back on you. And so for us, the real question that we have to then consider in our own hearts and our own minds is who am I going to serve? Am I going to serve Christ or am I going to serve myself? Uh, Tim Keller in his book on idolatry talks about this all the time and he says, the problem with the idolatry that's in our hearts is, is we can't just deal with it and then move on because there'll always be another thing that takes that place. We have to supplant that with Christ because he's the only thing that satisfies. He's the only thing that gives purpose. He's the only thing that is enough. Let's pray and then we'll join together for communion. God, thank you for sending Jesus Christ to the earth. Thank you that Jesus came willingly, that he came to sacrifice himself on the cross to be our atonement, that his blood would cover our sins, that he would rise from the dead, showing that he has conquered death. God, may we never take our eyes off of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May everything center around that. And as we live in a culture where so much is being fought about in the Christian circles and so much of scripture is, is being attacked and, and tried to demean, may we understand what's true and what's written in front of us and may we take it to heart. May we not be convinced of some other kind of idea of how we might be saved. 
Jesus said it plainly, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone that we find salvation. Would we continually go back to that and understand that? Would we continue to search for you? Would we continue to choose to worship and serve you? And God, whenever we give in to temptation, we pray that we as a church body, that we would love each other and that we would pray for each other, that we would be restored back to that right relationship with you. Help us to care for one another with such a radical love that the world on the outside looks at it and they don't understand it, but yet they know that they need it. God, thank you for this short little letter written for the truth that is in it and, and the relevance that is in it in our own day and age now, so long later. Thank you so much for it now. As we turn our focuses straight to communion, God, uh, help our focus to always be on the cross. When we read scripture and when we study through your word, may we constantly be brought back to that place where we understand the depth of love that you had for us, that Jesus willingly offered up his life as a ransom for ours. So God, as we read these few verses in Corinthians and as we consider them, would you just Fill us up with the realization that Christ and Christ alone is sufficient. That nothing else can compare or satisfy. Amen. So if you just want to flip back just a little ways to 1 Corinthians in your Bible. And as every month we'll just read um, from chapter 11. A few verses starting in verse 23 kind of help us, remind us and focus us. And then again, as, as with COVID right now, you, you all have the elements kind of right there with you. And so uh, we're just going to, we're not going to pass it, obviously. We're just going to read these things together and then I will pray and then we'll partake in these elements together. So it says this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Is the reminder for us is that we constantly need to be reoriented and refocused on the cross. 
We live in a hectic and crazy world, and, and especially these last few months, and we're going to talk about this a lot in our annual meeting following the service here, but it's so easy to get distracted by what's happening right now. It's so easy to lose focus on what's true and what's right and what's good and what's important from an eternal standpoint and shift all of our focus on the here and now. And why we celebrate communion every month is because we need that reminder to, to let go of all of those things. We, we probably need that reminder daily is to go back to the cross to be reminded of Jesus, the only thing that truly truly matters so I'm going to pray for the bread and then we will eat this together God we are so grateful that Jesus sacrificed on the cross that it was sufficient to forgive our sin God we confess that we live that we're so easily distracted. That our world has so much going on in it that so often we lose sight of you. And we focus on places we shouldn't. And John has just told us not to serve idols. So God, would we fix our eyes on you as we consider our own hearts right now and as we've read in the text this morning, God, would we, would we confess the things to you that need to be confessed? Would we humble ourselves and realize the depth of our need of you? And all of the things that surround our thoughts and cloud our minds and our judgment, God, we pray that those things would be pushed away as we focus on you. Because you alone are worthy. So God, we thank you that Jesus died on the cross. The only substitution. The only atonement possible for our sin. God, thank you for doing what we could not. And thank you for your grace for doing what we did not deserve. And so as we eat this, this cracker here, which represents your body broken for us, would we consider the implications that that means in our hearts and in our lives now? Amen. Let's eat together in remembrance of him. God, as we now turn our attention towards the cup, towards your blood spilled for us. God, we, we know from all of Scripture that the sacrificial system was pointing to something and that no amount of animal sacrifice or anything could actually deal with sin in any lasting, meaningful way. 
but only the blood of Jesus. And so, God, we thank you that Jesus was willing. We thank you that he lived this perfect life so that he could be our substitute, so that he could offer his life in place of ours. And as we drink this cup together in a moment here, not only do we recognize our desperate need of you, but we also proclaim that you are coming again. And as John has been telling us through this short letter, that we can have certainty that we will be with you for all of eternity. Nothing could compare with that. And so would you fix our eyes on you and would you give us the proper perspective beyond just the here and now? God, we thank you for the blood of Jesus, sufficient to forgive all sin. And God, we submit to you now that we follow after Jesus, that we love you, and that we want to honor you with how we live. God, thank you for it. Amen. Let's drink together. Let me just close real quickly in, in prayer, and we'll give you about five minutes. Um, if you are visiting this morning, uh, you are, of course, welcome to stay for our annual meeting. They are the highlight of everyone's year. I'm just kidding. They're probably not the highlight of your year. But we would, you're welcome to stay. If you, uh, if you would rather, you are welcome to get up and kind of you can head out the back doors. That's no problem. And in about five minutes, we'll gather together under our fearless leader's direction. So let's just pray as we go from here. God, thank you uh, again for all you have taught us, all you have shown us in your word. As we move forward uh, into our, our meeting now, God, would you give us wisdom? Would you show us what you would have us do here in the community of Banff, that we would declare your word, that we would make Jesus known in our community? God, we thank you for the men and women who serve on the, the general board. We thank you for our elders. We thank you for those who put so much time and effort into the leadership of this church. God, we are humbled to know that you have called us to this. And we just pray that as we would discuss these things now, that you would receive glory and honor from us. We exist to serve you. We thank you for the opportunity. Go with us now. Amen.